0: While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alabama left for the old left hand around the ring. You go a grand old right left, walk on your heel and toe. Promenade an any pretty gal to Georgia. At the close of the Civil War, things were difficult in Georgia. Civil government was holding on by a thread, and the implementation of Reconstruction under Washington, D.C. was causing anger and stress all over the state. Well, you know, duh, we learned that in high school. One of the first steps President Johnson took was to put James Johnson in place as provisional governor. To Joe Brown, the governor who saw the state through the war, it was clear which way the wind blew, and he resigned shortly after. Johnson, the President, had three requirements for a State to fulfill before re entering the Union: rescind the secession ordinance, abandon their war debt, and free their slaves. Governor Johnson called for a Constitutional Convention to be attended only by people that had not yet been pardoned for being part of the Confederate Government. Erasing the debt was difficult, because so many Georgians had bought war bonds that would now be useless and the Convention left open the possibility, the very, very distant possibility, of compensation for freed slaves. And one other thing, they had to ratify the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And with that, Georgia was a state again. Members of Congress were elected and Charles Jenkins was elected governor. With the new constitution, slavery was abolished. The state of Georgia was declared to ever remain a member of the American Union, the people thereof a part of the American nation. And no law that subverted the United States Constitution would have any binding force. Confederate money had disappeared and United States dollars were being circulated. Things were getting back to normal, or at least showed the potential of getting back to normal when some northern congressmen decided the South was being handled too easily and needed to be further punished for the war. And here comes the 14th Amendment. No one can be deprived of life or property without due process. Yeah, That's good. Equal protection under the law. Yeah, That's also good. But the Dred Scott case had declared that Americans descended from African slaves could not be citizens. And the 14th Amendment changed that. Also, the United States Constitution in Article 1 says the number of representatives in the U.S. Congress was determined by white population plus three-fifths of the slave population. The Fourteenth Amendment eliminates the Three-Fifths Rule. This was a problem for those who wanted to deny blacks the right to vote. Technically, if they are being represented in Congress, they should have the right to vote. Lastly, the Fourteenth Amendment gives Congress the right to expel or refuse to seat elected officials who had participated in insurrection. If you read the news, you've definitely heard this come up and this was a problem when Alexander Stevens was appointed to the Senate. When he arrived, they refused to let him take a seat. Eventually, in 1872, an amnesty was passed to cover all but the most senior Confederates which mostly eliminated that problem. All the Confederate states except Tennessee rejected the 14th Amendment. They protested they were being treated unfairly, because, honestly, they were. Georgia had done everything President Johnson required to rejoin the Union and was again a state. It wasn't right for the federal government to impose a new condition for rejoining the Union after the other three had already been fulfilled. In 1867, mostly due to the pushback on the 14th Amendment, the former Confederate states were divided into military districts and the army came back. General John Pope was placed over the 3rd district, which included Georgia. Boards were formed to ensure that blacks were legally registered to vote. In Georgia, 95,000 white people were registered to vote and 93,000 blacks. You can imagine how that would make some people nervous. The following election, Rufus Bullock was elected governor. That's who this episode is about, by the way. This is Moving Through Georgia, and today, Three Amendments and Rufus Bullock. And, yes, the 14th Amendment was ratified, and with Bullock's election and the amendment ratified, the troops withdrew, and Georgia was back in the Union again. One major stumbling block was 29 blacks who had been elected to the State House of Representatives and nine to the Senate. All but four were eventually expelled and replaced with whites. Bullock pointed out those expulsions and some growing violence from the Ku Klux Klan when he requested for the military to return yet again and for the federal government to take a heavier hand in Georgia politics. And if that's not difficult enough, at this point, the Congress takes up the issue of the 15th Amendment, another amendment aimed at the South. The rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So the 13th Amendment freed the slaves, the 14th Amendment made them citizens, and the 15th Amendment guaranteed them the right to vote. In 1869, Grant was elected with no help from Georgia. Its U.S. representatives had been expelled from the House, its senators had not been seated. It was hard to tell if Georgia was part of the Union again or not, and if it wasn't, Who knew when the Congress would stop adding conditions to rejoin? Now, it's alleged in a book by our old friend E. Merton Coulter, who we haven't heard from in a while, that Bullitt was behind the rejection of the amendment and held up allowing the black state representatives and senators to return to office. He wanted the attention of Washington, D.C., and he got what he wanted when the army returned. Georgia was once again under a military appointee, General Alfred Terry. The black candidates were readmitted to the state legislature, and 22 whites who had been responsible for purging them were themselves expelled. Needless to say, Bullock was not Georgia's most popular governor. Rufus Bullock was born in 1834 in New York. He got married and moved to Augusta to work for a railroad company. He was not a supporter of secession but did accept a Confederate Lieutenants Commission during the war and he served in the quartermaster's office. He set, up tele- he set up telegraph lines, coordinated railroads and would eventually rise to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. After the war he was president of the Macon and Augusta Railroad and founded the Augusta First National Bank. So, he had a good knowledge of business and technology, and lots of connections in industry and finance. While he was governor, his business connections would bring new industry to Georgia, and he would move the state capital from Milledgeville to a city with better access to the railroads, Atlanta. Now, we're going to digress a little bit. As governor, he had a financial advisor named Hannibal Kimball. An article in the Georgia Historical Quarterly describes Kimball as a scoundrel, but also as a product of his times. Opportunities were rare during the war years, and those who developed morals often wouldn't reap the benefits of those opportunities. Fierce competition for food, fuel, and ammunition bred businessmen who were ready for fierce competition when the war ended. The city of Atlanta offered Georgia a Capitol building to be used free of charge for 10 years. Kimball jumped on that opportunity and renovated an old opera house into offices for the governor and his staff. Rent to be paid by the taxpayers, of course. He invested in things like expanding the water supply and he founded a bank. But Kimball was at heart a railroad man and he planned to make the majority of his fortune in the railroads. By 1871, he was president of nine railroads and had put down over 300 miles of track. He also built the Kimball House, a 16-story, 500-room hotel built for the height of elegance that was the first building in Atlanta to have elevators and central heating. Kimball also cut corners, used influence, talked to a lot of friends and made some kind of questionable deals, and Bullock's political enemies would trumpet those as high crimes to anyone who would listen. Word spread that Kimball was getting rich at the expense of the taxpayers. He was, and that Bullock was coming along for the ride. He was. Kimball rose to power and wealth, but those rumors began dragging him down eventually businesses would stop working with him all those rumors of corruption had badly damaged his reputation and his fortunes began to sink now this surprised me kimball's fortunes really took a downturn in 1871 and that was because of the chicago fire a fire that large had a devastating impact on the economy but also companies that just didn't want to be associated with kimball anymore even a few in europe would cancel their contracts and cite the fire as the reason of course not all of this was rumors lots of it was true bullock had apparently funneled some state money to kimball to renovate the opera house and still turn a profit and up to a million dollars in railroad bonds had been issued illegally The state purchased railroad cars from Kimball that were never delivered. It was alleged that some of his more lucrative contracts were won through bribery. As Kimball's crimes were found out, Bullock took the blame as well. Between charges of corruption and his unwavering support of African American voting rights, Bullock had quickly become, I think I've said this already, a very unpopular governor. Talk of impeachment was everywhere and in 1871, Governor Bullock resigned and left the state. One Atlanta paper said, Guilt drove him from the office, which he obtained by fraud and which he has disgraced by crime. While Bullock was in New York, people started looking into those deals he and Kimball had made. The investigation took years and looked into every deal Bullock and Kimball had engaged in. Bullock was called a fugitive and the papers demanded he be arrested and extradited to Georgia. And that's fine for the papers to say everyone who was involved in industry or the state government may have breathed a sigh of relief when Bullock left. Maybe their own part in his deals wouldn't come out. Five years later, he returned to Atlanta to face a jury for charges of public corruption and conspiracy to defraud the state, and he was acquitted – twice. For the second trial, the jury was only out for 30 minutes. One newspaper article I read said that they had to admit that he had to be considered innocent of the charges, but only because he had covered his tracks so well, and most asked a simple question. If he was innocent of all the charges all along, why did he leave the state and evade trial for five years? Even after all this, Bullock still had friends. He stayed in Atlanta, becoming president of the city's first cotton mill, president of the Chamber of Commerce, and a member of the Piedmont Driving Club. This former governor, who had been hated and reviled by the press and the people, became a pillar of the community. I believe that two things salvaged his reputation. First, Bullock kept his mouth shut and didn't try to save himself by implicating anyone else in his questionable business dealings. And second, those questionable dealings did bring a tremendous amount of investment to Atlanta. People were going to work and banks were making money. Who cares if it involved a kickback two, three, five, eight years ago? Bullock returned to his home state of New York in 1903 and died in 1907. The Atlantic Constitution, remember how he had obtained his office by fraud and disgraced it by crime? Well, the Atlantic Constitution came up with, Few Georgians, whether by birth or adoption, did more real good for the state than he. So what's our lesson for today? Nobody cares what you did five years ago if everybody's making money now. Now this is moving through Georgia, and I'm not asking for money. All I'm asking is for you to give me five stars on whatever podcast app you listen on. It really does move us up the charts and helps get this podcast out to more people. If you have any questions comments or shady business tips i'm definitely down moving through georgia at gmail.com remember hannibal kimball well he was rehabilitated as well after going nearly broke and being threatened with years of litigation in georgia he managed to make a living in new england in 1880 he also returned to atlanta He was not only back, he was running for mayor. He was defeated, but it was close. Kimball then put together the International Cotton Exposition, which exhibited for visitors not only the latest advances in textile technology, but all Georgia industries. Hundreds of thousands of people packed the exposition and the city of Atlanta and its 500-room hotel. He became a hero for making Georgia the head of industrialization in the post-Reconstruction South, another scoundrel whose reputation was washed clean with lots and lots of money.